I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And the first episode of the show was recorded just over a year ago. We've talked about a range of subjects since then, from nuclear power to mRNA vaccines, from Maslow's hierarchy of needs to the Montessori method, just to name a few. But a recurring theme of the podcast, guest after guest, has been identity. How do we understand ourselves and how do we understand one another? How do we create a diversity that strives for common ground while respecting the very things that make us who we are? And how do we speak truth to the power of our ego when it threatens to get in the way of progress? Our guest this week shows others how to have the courage to do exactly that. Irshad Manji is founder of the Moral Courage Project, which provides the tools to practice diversity and inclusion in a no-shaming way. It has just released an online course for teachers called, quote, Diversity Without Division, Introducing Educators to the Moral Courage Method, end quote. Irshad is also the New York Times bestselling author, most recently of Don't Label Me, and a professor of leadership practice at Oxford University's Initiative for Global Ethics and Human Rights. Irshad, thanks so much for joining us today. So I'd like to start with a quote from your aforementioned book, Don't Label Me. Quote, ever since you trundled into my life with your charcoal fur, your lamb chopped legs, and your swashbuckling tail, I've become a more humane human, end quote. Now, to our listeners, this first bit is going to seem tangential at first, but stay with me. So I had a childhood dog from 9 to 19 who came down with terminal cancer at age 10. And when we put him to rest, it was, <laughs> I'm actually, <laughs> it's weird, I, I'm just saying it out loud, I'm starting to get emotional. It was the first time I'd ever seen my own father, who's not one to shy away from emotion, cry as uncontrollably as he did when we put our family dog to sleep. And I currently have a three-year-old dog of my own, adopted in the immediate wake of a long and emotionally exhaustive five-year relationship. And I often talk to him in full paragraphs. And his nickname, one of his nicknames, is Bean. Ugh. So before we get to the meat of our conversation about the moral courage method, and with the full understanding that that word might trigger Lily if she were still here, I'd love for you to share with us a bit about the first dog you ever called your own, because Don't Label Me is in many ways written as a dialogue between you and her in a way that honestly very deeply connected with me. Oh, I am so, so glad to hear that. You know, some people think that it's gimmicky to write a book as a conversation between you and your dog. But for me, it was the only way that I could write it. Because, you know, Lily Bean, and that's why the word bean, yep, resonates with me deeply. Lily Bean would have, in another chapter of my life, been my other. And what I mean by that is I grew up as a Muslim, I remain Muslim, and many Muslims, not all, but many, myself included, are raised to believe that dogs are what is known in Arabic as najis. That's the word for dirty, but it means more than physically dirty, spiritually dirty as well. So the idea was that, you know, if you even touched a dog, you would be polluting yourself and quite possibly, you know, damning yourself to hell. There are cultural reasons, uh, not religious reasons, but cultural reasons behind this really very irrational belief. But for the longest time, I bought into it. And it was only well into my 40s when I experienced a severe health crisis 
that my partner at the time said to me, you know, Irshad, you really need to appreciate the healing power of cuddling with a dog. She had three of her own. And I took her word for it. And I went out and adopted the least threatening dog I could find. She was old and she was blind. She was Lily, aka Lily Bean. And you know, those descriptors I've used for her old and blind were themselves merely labels. Because I'll tell you, she defied the baggage that goes with the words old and blind. Lily was the most independent-minded, sassy, brassy creature, human or non-human, that I've ever had the pleasure of being in relationship with. I remember the first time I tried to put a collar around her to go out for a walk, she absolutely refused to accept that collar. She waged what I would call a non-cooperation campaign against the collar, and she wouldn't budge until she knew that there would not be a collar around her. When I tried to train her to you know, walk in my direction, and I would clap so that she would hear me, remember she was blind, she would, I think deliberately, pivot 180 degrees and deliberately walk the other way. <laughs> she was not going to be condescended to, thank you very much. And you know, that personality made me fall in love with her even more. Because if you know anything about me, and I think you do know a little bit about me, you know that I adore individuality, which is different from individualism. And maybe we can get to that later. But what makes any sentient being unique is what I want to know. Because to me, that is part and parcel of not only what it means to live in a pluralistic society, but as a person of faith, to me, that is yet another reminder of the majesty of our universal creator, that what I might call God and others might call the universe and still others might call Tao, God does not manufacture widgets, not a majestic creator, not one worthy of being part of your life. So for all of those reasons, Lily struck me as exactly the right conversation partner. And the reason, by the way, for having a conversation as opposed to writing a book strictly as an essay is that I think so much of what we're missing today, those of us who love the idea of co-creating a future, a future worth having, so much of what we're missing revolves around conversation and how, literally the how, the skills of conducting one or more than just one. So before I get carried away with my monologue, I hope that helps you understand why it takes everything in me to hold back my tears as I speak about Lily. She passed away in the midst of writing this book, but for reasons that I hope some readers or future readers will glean we didn't stop having the conversation after she was cremated. I appreciate you sharing that with us. 
you know, the first year that I had my dog, who I have now, who's three years old, the first year that I had him from eight weeks until about his first birthday was rough, right? Because as I've talked about in this podcast in a couple episodes, I had kind of a, a rough relationship, which eventually kind of caused me to start this podcast in the first place. And there were definitely periods of time where it was just me and him in my apartment. And I would just find myself just emotionally breaking down and just kind of confessing to him about all the ways in which I either felt broken or felt inadequate. And he became this kind of receptacle mm-hmm. that I could just talk to because all he would do was listen, right? Like that, yeah. as, as you are well aware now, it's like, there's no judgment from a dog. They don't apply labels to you because they don't know how to. And yeah, so I wanted to call that out right up front, not only because I think it is relevant to the larger part of our conversation, but I'm such a dog lover that if I didn't, I would regret it. Well, I know that we're going to dive into some big ideas over the course of our conversation, but let me just say that I finally understand what the fuss is all about when it comes to having a dog. You know, you mentioned a particularly difficult relationship that you were in. The truth is that Lily became my safe space. Wow, I'm getting emotional. (laughs) She became my safe space, you know, when I was going through the worst of a very, very tough relationship. And I said to my partner at the time, if you treated me the way you treat your dogs, Mm. I would be so into this relationship. And she said to me, I can say the same about you. This is not about us against them, not at all. It's about how these beautiful creatures, dogs in this case, mm-hmm. insinuate themselves into your soul. Mm-hmm. And I get it now, my friend. <laughs> Do I get it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's circle back to that because it is something that I know we both want to talk about later on in this discussion, the personal relationships who have made us who we are and in many ways have driven us to do what we do, right? But before we get there and as a way to continue to transition to uh, the Moral Courage Project and the educational pedagogical framework you've created in order to teach diversity and inclusion in a healthy way, I want to talk a little bit more about a couple other important people in your book who I think are directly relevant Let's continue to talk about the other, right? Or what we perceive as the other. Mm -hmm. And I'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about Jim. (laughs) Uh, He was the man you first met at a conference in LA. He's a reformed Jew who voted for Donald Trump, but at the conference offered to help you in your efforts to reform Islam. And you said on a, a PBS firing line interview with Margaret Hoover that, quote, the only label I can stand by now is plural, end quote. But to our listeners, the labels that Jim contains may cause some confusion. An ally in Islamic reform who voted for a president that spoke of restricting Muslim immigration. But he's since become a father figure in your life, right? Yes, and not without its issues too. Uh, (laughs) Because after all, we're human and complicated. But yeah, I first met Jim years ago at a conference where I was speaking about the need, or at least as I see it, the need for reform in my faith of Islam. And he got up and he said, uh, how can I help you? And I told him I was stunned by that question. It was so blunt. And I I said to him that I think we can figure out a way to work together. And then (laughs) he said out loud, well, you should just know that I'm a Jew. Is that going to look bad on you to be working with a Jew? And I said, Jim, 
you should know that I've already been accused of being a Jew lover. So let's make it worth my while to love you. (laughs) And that's how we developed a relationship over many, many years. Hmm. And, you know, well before Trump, whenever I was living in New York at the time, whenever I would come to Los Angeles to visit Jim and his wife, Liz, it wouldn't take more than a few minutes of us being on the 405 for him to sort of launch into a disquisition about how upset he was with Republicans, particularly in the state. And over the years of listening to his observations, or at least his suspicions about Republican corruption and mismanagement and weakness in the face of those overbearing, bullying Democrats, I realized that Jim's need to vote for Donald Trump did not come from a place of xenophobia or any kind of hatred toward a group of people. He was in the camp, and I think remains in the camp, of those who have just become so disillusioned by their own party for all kinds of reasons, but none of them having to do with demographics. Hmm. So when Trump launched his campaign, Jim and I began discussing politics more than we ever had. And I, because I loved him, I wanted to understand where he was coming from. And so we would have a lot of conversations that got testy, got tense. And I described some of those, you know, moments in Don't Label Me. But Above all, I really did, for myself anyway, verify that Jim isn't crazy. He isn't evil. He isn't stupid. He has his reasons for voting the way he does. And though I may, and I do, profoundly disagree with those reasons, I'll bet there's something to be learned from Jim that I wouldn't have known had I not engaged in these discussions with him. And among the things that I learned is how badly he hurts when people assume that he is, and pick your label, a racist, homophobe, a misogynist, simply for voting Republican. These things don't just bounce off of him. He has become that much more defensive Mm. as a result of the labeling. And when I began to put two and two together, my labels for Lily and how she contradicted the baggage that goes with those labels and other people's labels for Jim and how upset, not upset because a raw nerve was touched, but upset because he felt so profoundly misunderstood. When I combined all of those observations with how I myself have been labeled over many years of differing from whatever the consensus is on any given issue, I really made that commitment to write a book that helped people open their hearts in order to open their minds. Yeah. And the thing you're touching on is something that Amanda Ripley, who was also a guest on the show, the author of High Conflict, mm-hmm. it's a, something she talks about at length, the idea that we all contain multiple identities. And that we're not just one thing and that all the identities can be swapped in and out depending on the situation we're in and they all come together. 
to kind of make a more cohesive whole. But if I'm just going to pull up a quote here real quick, a quote from your own book to kind of act as a devil's advocate, right? To what you just said, which I personally sure. happen to agree with, right? Mm-hmm. But to quote from your book, a hypothetical respondent to Jim's predicament, right? Of feeling judged, quote, boo-hoo, bruh. You think you're under siege? Get over yourself and welcome to payback time, end quote. And I think that if we're going to give the other side, right? The people I think we both want to connect with as well as Jim, they're due. Yep. They might say, are people of color in the United States today not justified to some extent in their desire for some kind of payback, right? And not the payback of the kind that was oftentimes the brutal, murderous, excluding kind that was enacted upon them over history. But if it's a label or two, if it's a quick judgment, if it's a name that becomes a meme on Twitter or something, is that not on some level justified, all things considered? Sure. Justified on some level, all things considered. Notice all of the qualifiers that you know, you've know you put in front of me. I would say, okay, I hear you. But at the same time, I would say, just don't expect to be heard when you are doing to others a version of what you are so angry about having been done to you. And, you know, this leads me to a thought that I've been, frankly, regurgitating over many, many months now, which is that I think today we, define we as you will, but those of us who are interested in contributing to social change, we are missing what I might call actually a world historic opportunity, which is that we can actually replace the us against them paradigm with something far more constructive. And one of the metaphors or analogies that I try to sketch for people who want to hear more about this idea is that, you know, you can imagine two teams on a field playing whatever sport you want them to be playing. And one of the teams is wearing a 400, 500-year-old jersey with the title powerful. And the other is wearing a very old jersey with the title less powerful. Notice I didn't say powerless. And I hope for reasons that I can explain later, I do not believe that anybody is powerless. But there's team powerful, and then there's team less powerful. And in approaching social change through the us against them lens, all that is happening on the field is that these uniforms are being swapped out. The powerful now wear the jersey of the less powerful, and the historically less powerful now wear the jersey of the powerful. So, great. Those uniforms have changed. What hasn't changed? is the game. And that is what I believe a practice like moral courage has the potential to help change. Because if we're going to be justifying cruelty, dehumanization, with certainly a gentler form, a more casual form of cruelty and dehumanization, then what you're getting is payback. And I defy anybody who is an aficionado of history to tell me when 
payback has amounted to progress. I mean, long-term progress. Temporary victories, sure. But progress that is sustainable? I'm a graduate of history. I have yet to find an example that is sustainable because sustainability requires buy-in, not just from your own, but particularly from those who would otherwise resist. That's what makes change sustainable. That, in fact, is what turns change into transformation. So I really do aim higher than justifying payback, all things considered. A big part of moral courage and the moral courage educational framework is distinguishing the very toxic and historically repetitive us against them is what you call a natural and benign us and them. And speaking of history, there was quite a bit of Canadian history that I learned <laughs> in Don't Label Me that was actually shocking because I associate Canada with just niceness and over-apologizing and sorries and Tim Hortons and uh, <laughs> friendly socialism, right? Like uh, socialized healthcare for all, right? I will pronounce my ignorance of the, the country north of me, but had you told me that only a few decades ago that political kidnappings and firebombings were happening in Quebec, I don't think I would have believed you. And I think you can anticipate the question that's coming here, but you talk about Pierre Trudeau, who I think is directly relevant to the us and them framework in moral courage. And he was endeavoring in the 1970s to make Canada a truly multicultural country and played a pivotal role in that project. How does the senior Trudeau's views integrate with the us and them framework that is so foundational to moral courage. Yeah. So let me just clarify right away that, as you pointed out, I point out that us and them is usually benign and it's human default. We naturally incline to us and them because we are born with brains that are pattern seeking organs. So without meaning to, we will, you know, draw distinctions between those people and these people. We will group creatures and objects under categories without necessarily pitting them against one another. Okay. That's what I mean about us and them being benign. I can belong to a series of different communities that you belong to. And that still does not inhibit our ability to cooperate, right? Us and them. The problem is when us and them congeals into us against them, us versus them. And this is where we come to Pierre Trudeau, who was certainly among Canada's greatest prime ministers. He was a classic liberal, not economically necessarily, but he fundamentally believed in appreciating the individuality of every human being. And I say this because, and you know the quote, you've tweeted it out actually, when Pierre Trudeau rose in parliament to introduce the policy of multiculturalism and it made Canada the world's first country 
to pursue multiculturalism as a national policy. This is what he said. National unity, if it is to mean anything in the deeply personal sense, must be founded on confidence in one's own individual identity. Out of this can grow respect for that, meaning the identity of others, and a willingness to share ideas, attitudes, and assumptions. That sounds a lot like pluralism. And that's what multiculturalism in Canada was meant to be. But we human beings have an uncanny ability to F up good ideas, whether capitalism, Islam, feminism, you name it. We, in our lust for power, manage to twist very good ideas into their opposites. And that's what multiculturalism has become, not just in Canada, but now also in the United States. Yeah. And kind of staying on that path a little bit, but bringing it back to moral courage, I think that brings us to Sam from Appalachia. Mm. And I want to discuss or interrogate a little bit about how his story from Don't Label Me, I think, directly informs your project. There's a quote from the book. It says, quote, he's down for equality as long as he knows that it's neither a swindle nor a setup, that it is being sought in good faith, which is why he questions any multiculturalism that excludes some people under the banner of including all people. And I think for our listener, uh, our listeners, (laughs) (laughs) all two of them, our one listener. Yeah. I think for our listeners who may not quite understand what that means without additional context, what does Sam mean by that? And how is it relevant to teaching diversity without division? I'm bringing it all to America now, okay? We've, 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 uh, Canada is in the rearview mirror here. Okay, so Sam is a young man who approached me privately after a lecture that I gave at a university in the South. And he said to me, Irshad, I have a South American girlfriend. I love her family. I think they love me back. I've learned so much from them. And to me, they're just a part of my landscape, as they should be. So why is it that in the American South, not in South America now, but in the American South, people here are so often excluded from what it means to be a part of multicultural America? I mean, he said, you know, obviously there's always that one chef on some popular food show, right? Who that was a great line. And he's not wrong in pointing this out. He's not. You know, who is celebrated for keeping culinary traditions of the South, the US South alive, the whole farm to table bit he pointed (sighs) out. So great, wonderful. But when scholars, when academics are teaching about diversity, they tend to see people like me, a white straight guy in the U.S. South, as a sort of an outcast in the multicultural fabric. Like, I don't really belong there. In fact, the assumption is made that I would hate a multicultural America. And he said, why aren't our traditions ever considered part of what deserves to be celebrated. And I needed to buy myself a couple of seconds to think about this. So I said, what kinds of traditions? 
And he said, well, he knew I was teaching at New York University at the time. He said, when you walk around your city, do you ever feel like you're immersed in a culture of generosity? And I'm like, not typically. And he said, right. But here, you drive your car into a ditch by accident or even on purpose. And there'll be like a flock of people who get out of their cars and see what help they can provide you with. Like whoever you are, there will be hospitality. There will be neighborliness. And I just don't understand. He said, why? Inclusion is taught in a way that excludes the best of what this part of America has to offer. And I began to think about it some more. And obviously, he wasn't, and I'm not, denying hundreds of years of enslavement and Jim Crow and subsequent segregation. Nobody is denying the most heinous crimes for which the U.S. South is known. But it does beg the question, if we really are sincere about diversity, then why aren't more of us diversifying (laughs) our picture of what it is about the South that does need to be preserved and even honored? And I think in many ways, it's because certain groups of people are labeled only for the worst aspects of what the culture attached to them has offered. It's because they've been stigmatized in that way that they see diversity and inclusion as a sham, as a scam. Because if it really was diversity, if it really was inclusion, it wouldn't be practiced in such a simplistic either or, and as a result, exclusionary way. And again, there are those I'm sure who would say, you know, boo-hoo, bruh, right? Welcome to payback. But I keep coming back to the point, you know, if we really want to make progress, and that's if, by the way, because I'm not convinced that everybody does want to make a progress, including those in movements that advocate social change. But if we want to make progress, it's not enough. In fact, it's Worse than not enough, it's counterproductive to be okay with payback. We've got to aim for higher. And that's why I do focus on moral courage as a path to diversity without division. In the way moral courage, and I'll get to what moral courage is in a second, but in the way that moral courage envisions diversity or defines diversity more to the point. Diversity of of perspective, of viewpoint, is part and parcel of diversity itself. Why? Because diversity exists not just between groups, but also within groups. I'm Muslim. That doesn't mean that I think the same way as every other Muslim does. And by the way, every other Muslim doesn't think the same as every other Muslim. You know, all black people don't think alike. Every white person has a unique backstory. So the point being that, and again, it's a big if, if we are committed to busting stereotypes in the name of social justice, then we should avoid 
creating new stereotypes as we try to explode or dissolve old stereotypes. So to say all people in the U.S. South are this is simply nonsensical and actually very anti-diversity. And yet, a lot of people who otherwise think themselves agents of social transformation have no problem stereotyping the Sams of this world under a category and ascribing negative characteristics to that category in order to show that the other, in this case, those who are not in the U.S. South, are better. It's just more of us against them. Yeah. And I mean, I'll say, you know, as a child of Northern California who liked to consider himself pretty accepting, growing up, white Southerners were the safest punching bag of all. You bet. We made fun of them. We did the accents, knowing that it was completely fair game. Not to mention the fact that we would always talk about the quote unquote flyover states exactly. without batting an eye. <laughs> exactly. That's right. It was here in Los Angeles, uh, maybe six or seven years ago. And I work as a, a freelancer in marketing. And there was a guy I worked with who worked under me. I was kind of a manager. And he was about five years younger than me. And he was from the South, I want to say Missouri. And <laughs> I always get Missouri and Mississippi confused in my head. I had to make sure. And he has kind of a, a thick drawl, right? And I was so used to, because no one ever growing up, you know, and I was like 32 at this point, no one ever growing up had pulled me aside and said, you're being an asshole. And so like to his face in front of other people, I would mock his accent. And I thought it was just in good fun, right? Like, it's no big deal. Like, in my mind, I would think, oh, you're probably used to this. And we all know, I mean, like, look, you're a white guy, like, this is not a big deal. You can't be taking this seriously, because we all know that the tears of oppression are racialized. And so me doing this to you as a fellow white dude is like, fine, right? We know that there are certain groups that are off limits, and we shouldn't talk about them in that way, because they're historically marginalized, but you're not. So if I do a voice like this, and blah, 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 then it's totally fair game. And that was how I thought about it for a long time. And he never gave me any indication aside from maybe like a joking, oh man, like cut it out, blah, blah, blah. It wasn't until maybe a year into us working together on and off that he pulled me aside privately and he told me that it was hurtful. And it took me a while to internalize that because like I said, and I will admit it now because it was a point of personal growth. There was nowhere in society, in either my personal friend groups or on the national stage, in my media or elsewhere, that ever told me it wasn't okay to joke about that. And yeah, so I, I, that passage stuck with me. You know, I can well understand if somebody listening to your story might think, okay, you know, I mean, I can see why it would be a little bit hurtful, but come on. I mean, you know, mocking someone's, particularly a white guy's accent, ultimately it's not a big deal. And that dude just, you know, needs to man up. And I hasten to point out that that is not like your story is not nearly as bad as it gets <laughs> for a lot of white people living in the South. I, I remember a kid, a guy at another university in the American South, after a seminar I taught 
he came to me a couple hours later when I was holding office hours. He said to me that he is so often told that he is a, quote, mother effing mutant, because, of course, the cousins, right, are screwing each other in his family. And he just couldn't understand why it was okay to do that. And he said to me, Irshad, I would never think that, let alone say that about any group of people, including, and he knew I'm Muslim, including Muslims. You know, whatever the caricatures and the misconceptions many Americans have about your people, I can tell you that I would just think it is sick to make the kinds of claims about Muslims that people so easily get away with making about those who are part of my heritage. And it goes to show all of us, every single one of us, regardless of our complexion, our sexuality, our gender identity, our ethnicity, every single human being has biases. Every single human being. And I dare say that there would be more of a breakthrough in diversity, equity, and inclusion work if people of color stood up and said, I'm going to tell you the biases that I've been operating from, the unacknowledged, unexamined biases that I've had over all of these years, and how I came to realize that I've got to change this about myself. If more people of color were honest about that, many more white people, I guarantee you, would feel the permission to go there too. And this actually uh, brings me, if I can, because I will forget otherwise, brings me to what moral courage is. Can I just say something about that? Please do. So moral courage is not an attribute. It's not a virtue. It's actually a set of skills. And I'll take you back to the late 60s for a brief moment. Robert F. Kennedy actually is the American who popularized the phrase moral courage. And he defined it to mean speaking truth to power. In fact, his foundation has as its motto, speak truth to power. That is moral courage, quite simply, for most educators. But there's a problem here. Today's popular culture pushes the narrative that power Speak, in, speak truth to power, power exists out there. I don't have any power, says the person who is speaking truth to it. I don't have any power. My other has the power. When the reality is that anybody who is born with a brain is born with a primitive part of the brain that is the home of the ego. And the ego is so powerful that it manipulates every single human being, myself included, to become more stressed, more threatened, more defensive when we encounter difference, including, and sometimes especially today, difference in how people think. So that if they disagree with me about 
something that I am particularly passionate about, then I'm not only going to disagree with them back, I am disgusted by them. That is the work of the ego, making us believe that their disagreement with us is an existential threat to us, which is why we're either going to have to lash back with everything we've got, or we're going to have to flick them away and move on. Never does the ego say, engage with them, see where they're coming from, lower their emotional defenses so that they can get rid of the noise that their ego is emitting and make some space for them to hear you as well. No, the ego never says that. The ego says, this is either or, and over your dead body, (laughs) will I allow you to lose this showdown. Today, therefore, moral courage cannot simply mean speak truth to power, as if power exists outside of us. It has to mean as well, speak truth to the power of your ego. And the truth that we need to be speaking to it is, look, ego, you exist for a reason. You exist to keep me alive. And boy, do I ever appreciate that. One of these days, you might very well prevent my untimely death. So I'll always be grateful to you, but I will never be servile to you. I will not allow myself to be manipulated by you. I'm going to remind myself in moments of disagreement that I can actually create a higher chance of being heard by my other if I go first in the listening department. And so moral courage is a series of skills that people can actually develop in order to turn disagreement into opportunities for meaningful engagement. And again, I want to emphasize, none of this is about being nice. I'm not against being nice. I'm Canadian after all, but it's not about being nice. Nor is it about civility for the sake of civility. Much harm has been done to all kinds of people in the guise of civility. Moral courage and developing the skills of moral courage is actually about becoming a more effective communicator of your truth. Because you might very well be right, but you can't know that what you stand for is right until you hear challenges to your point of view. And even if you say to me, sorry, sorry, Irshad, I know that standing up against racism is right. I don't need your stinking moral courage to validate that for me. And I would say, on this, you are right. But do you know if how you are opposing racism is the best way to go? Being in people's faces, mocking them, ridiculing them, humiliating them, shaming them. Is that really the way to move the needle on this issue? Or might there be a better way, a more effective way? And because you believe in shared humanity, a more humane way. Again, these are the questions that developing moral courage allows and encourages us to ask ourselves which ultimately is why so much of my work is 
for educators when they're teaching anti-racism or more benignly, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion in their classrooms. I want them to know that they can do it in a way that doesn't result in some people feeling guilty or humiliated simply for being born who they are. That there are more unifying ways to do this. And we should care about unifying because that is the way these teachings will become sustainable. That's a great point. And there was something that you talked about there, speaking truth to power. And I want to follow up a bit on that because in the pedagogy of the moral courage educational framework that you're offering to students and teachers in secondary school, you talk about how we must grapple with the idea that facts alone can't constitute truth. And I imagine that some folks might experience some cognitive dissonance upon hearing that phrase. But you say that moral courage means listening to various truths for the sake of moving forward. Can you speak to that? So, yeah, I recognize that in this fact fraught era, hearing, you know, somebody like me say that facts alone don't amount to truth can be misunderstood as facts don't matter. (laughs) And that is not what I'm saying at all. Facts exist and they do matter. They are the foundation of truth, but they are not the alpha and the omega of truth. Let me give an example. So, you know, I'm a reform-minded Muslim. I read a particular passage of the Islam scripture. A more traditional Muslim reads the exact same passage. And yet we come away with different and sometimes vastly different interpretations. Why is that? We're looking at the same facts, the same words, read in the same direction from right to left. Why isn't that enough to constitute truth? Well, it doesn't constitute truth. Truth is how we interpret the facts, what meaning we give the facts. And therefore, it is always influenced by our backstories, our personal experiences, any particular adversities and traumas that we're still dealing with, memories of joy that we have. All of these things are fused to give us a truth based on certain facts. And it's for this reason that speaking truth to power, the power of your own ego, is the right thing to do in most cases. Because whatever the labels you ascribe to other people or they to you, those labels cannot capture all of what they're about. And so it's by engaging. And by engaging, I mean, not arguing, not debating, but conversing with people and asking them yet more questions to bring out more of what constitutes meaning for them. That is how we come to appreciate, how I came to appreciate that Jim, right, my stridently Trumpian neighbor and father figure is not crazy or evil or stupid. 
He may be wrong, (laughs) as far as I'm concerned. Some of his positions may even be immoral by my standards. But he comes from some place of reasoning this for himself. And by learning what that place is, I then not only understand him as a fellow human being, but I also humanize myself to him because he sees I'm not here to play gotcha, that I'm not his puppeteer trying to instrumentalize him, use him as a means to my end, my agenda. No. And when I humanize myself to him, he has a much harder time demonizing others who take positions like I do. And in this way, we're actually working with our biology rather than dismissing it altogether. Moral courage is crucial to understanding multiple perspectives, but I'll go one step beyond. Listening to multiple perspectives does not mean agreeing with any or all of those perspectives. Listening is not the same thing as agreeing. I think the beauty of the moral courage method, meaning when to ask questions, how to ask questions in a way that doesn't make the other defensive, when to start speaking about where you're coming from, all of those skills. The beauty of having those skills is that you can stand your ground if you believe that, you know, on balance, you're still right. You can absolutely stand your ground and seek common ground at the same time, right? Standing your ground is about what you believe. Seeking common ground is about how you express what you believe. And if you can leave the other feeling respected, you are much more likely to get them rethinking their position than if you tried to bulldoze your point of view in their direction. In the book, I give plenty of social science research and stories to show why this is a much more effective way to be an activist. And again, in the spirit of diversity, I'm not suggesting be an activist only this way. I'm saying that even as you protest, even as you march, even as you blare messages through bullhorns, there's something more, something in addition to that, that will allow you to learn what you're missing about how to bring the holdouts on board. And you can only learn that by engaging. A repeated theme in your book, Don't Label Me, and I think in your work in general, is your radical honesty about how your own past, your past relationship with your family, with your friends, (laughs) your past relationship with understanding and coming to have a dog of your own has informed deeply the work that you do now and has informed the moral courage framework. And I would be remiss if I didn't circle this back to a topic that I know you wanted to discuss when we were first messaging back and forth. And it was about a couple of romantic relationships that you've had in the past that I imagine have informed (laughs) the person you are today and the work that you do. And you're welcome to speak to both of the ones you mentioned or only one, but they stuck out to me. One was in which your Muslim identity 
which is just a part of you, mm-hmm. one of many parts, as we've discussed today, became a sticking point, uh, so to speak, in a relationship. And then there was another relationship you had in which you were deemed not radical enough <laughs> to your yeah. partner. And so yeah. I have no further way to guide you into how you want to answer because I want to completely <laughs> defer to however you want to talk about it. But I think it is important and I wanted to give you space to discuss it. Well, the reason I even brought it up in our back and forth, the topic of personal relationships is that I've been very moved by whatever you've chosen to say about, you know, the very difficult relationship that you were in for a number of years that had you turned to a dog for some solace. And what I said to you in our back and forth is that we're both sort of thinkers and we love big ideas and we're ambitious about elevating the expectations of our human capacity to to grow. And yet, all of us, without exception, also live in a very messy, convoluted, sometimes ugly world. And that speaking about how we grapple with the ugliness is a great way, I believe, to helping other people appreciate that it, not only is it okay to be struggling with your ideals, it's necessary. And in no other facet of my life have I come to realize why struggling is painful and delicious all at once than in the facet of relationships. Very early on, you know, my first serious same-sex relationship was with someone who had the kind of politics that today would be called progressive. She was very, very left-wing, and she was sometimes embarrassed to have me as her partner because I simply wasn't radical enough for her friends. I always wanted to know what the opposing arguments were to almost everything that they raised. And of course, as dogmatists, they saw this as an act of selling out so that, you know, curiosity uh, became something of a thought crime. And I remember the moment that this person and I broke up. I was, we were both on the subway, on a streetcar, I should say, in Toronto. And I was reading a philosophy book and I was reading about Jean Jacques Rousseau. And I turned to her and I said, you know what? I think I'm a liberal. And she turned to me and she said, no shit, Sherlock. And in that moment, I knew it was over because I had decided that I was okay with open-mindedness. And having made that commitment, my partner decided there was no hope for me. The funny thing is, she is now married to a man with two kids. (laughs) So it seems that, you know, she found her paradise living a more mainstream life. But that's my point, is that we human beings are not static. We are not commodities. We are dynamic and ever-evolving. And on the other side, just to finish off this thought, I was in a really, really tough relationship with a woman who couldn't handle the complexity of my life as a Muslim in the United States. And I don't mean sort of negotiating my identity. I was at the time 
applying for my green card, you know, the permanent residency in the United States. And I tell the story and don't label me of how everything went very smoothly. All of the paperwork flowed very nicely. And in the final formality of getting one's green card, you have to be in the country of your citizenship, in this case, Canada, in order to cross into the United States. And that is what activates your green card, your permanent residency. And I had brought a stash of documents from the State Department with me to present to the Border Patrol officer at, uh, as it turns out, Trudeau Airport in Montreal. And as he stared into the computer screen, you know, he asked me all of these accusatory questions that if he had just read, deigned to read the paperwork, he would understand that there's no accusation to be issued here. Everything is in order. But the long and the short of it is that he denied me my green card. And when I got home, meaning to New York, I was absolutely shattered. How could this happen? Well, it turns out it could happen because, and this is now proven by the investigation that was done, he looked up my wiki profile, saw the words Islam and Muslim, and decided that I am an avatar of foreign antagonism. I was told later that he had written all over my file that she teaches Islam. Not true. I teach leadership. But because I had written two books, ironically enough, about the need for reform in Islam, he looked at those words and decided, that's it. You know, I'm a threat to this country. So in the various ways that I've had to deal with government in this country, my life has become complex. And my partner accused me of not thinking positively enough of inviting, in other words, negativity into my life, that I wasn't practicing the law of attraction, and that she had built her life around the law of attraction. And if that I was unwilling to practice it, then I was only going to bring negativity to her life too. And instead of appreciating that she, in fact, can cross the Mexico-US border without a passport, and still be allowed in, which is nothing if not an emblem of white privilege. Whereas I can't do that. I can't even cross the Canadian US border, the world's longest undefended border, without, of course, having to present my passport. She didn't understand that this was not a matter of abandoning the secret. This was a matter of people's lives being more complicated or other people's lives being less complicated simply mm. because of the complexion of their skin and the religion to which they adhere, right? So all of this is to say that I'm not rosy-eyed about hand-holding harmony. I get that real injustices exist. I've been dumped because of misunderstanding, intentional, willful misunderstanding, and I've been broken up with because of dogma and everything in between. <laughs> so it's had a personal impact, right? These are not abstract ideas, but I've also 
realized that every single one of these experiences has pushed me, painfully pushed me to grow in my understanding of how nuanced our world is. And this is why I want my own students to know that facing injustice, though you should not have to, will happen and that you need not be diminished by it. In fact, you can become more savvy without becoming cynical. I consider myself truly blessed by the complications of my life. And yes, I say this as somebody who has all of her basic needs met. So I get that disadvantage is not a blessing for some people. I embrace that truth. At the same time, for those of us who are fortunate enough to not have perfect lives, that's actually a wonderful incentive to grow. And I would find this world deathly boring if I wasn't incentivized to grow. Oh, Irshad, one thing that I have struggled with through this conversation, and we talked about this before we recorded, is striking a balance when I was putting together questions between talking about your amazing biography, all of the work that you're doing with the Moral Courage Project, which is separate from the Moral Courage Education Pedagogical Curriculum, (laughs) and all the other work that you've done. It is so difficult. And I say this, I mean, it's a blessing. Speaking of blessings, it is difficult in the best way to try and condense, and I hope this is not inflate your ego too much, an amazing life like yours into such a small period of time. Because I would love to continue the conversation, perhaps we can have one in the future, about personal relationships on a more in-depth level. Because I 100% agree with you in that they make us who we are and they do challenge us to grow. And hopefully, we grow in the best ways that we can. I really appreciate you sharing that with me. I have one last thing to say, if you don't mind. Of course, please. Well, this also involves a relationship. In this case, my relationship with Jim. I mentioned when you first asked me about him that it's not without its issues. And I've never talked about this publicly. But I'm struggling right now with how to get my relationship with Jim back on track in this sense. You know, one of the things that attracted him to me was my willingness and is my willingness to speak up about the need for reform, nonviolent change within my faith. Today, I see so many people like Jim and including Jim not speaking up about the need for change in his Republican Party. The very violence that he knew and I knew was the right thing to oppose in the name of Islam. He has not opposed in the name of Republican Party power. And I don't mind admitting, I feel like a chump. I feel sucker punched by Jim. Why is it right for me to be speaking out against religious violence and not wrong for him to stay silent about the quasi-religious violence being committed by much 
of the Republican Party today. Why the double standard? And I will tell you, I've had a few restless nights thinking to myself, how do I raise this with Jim in a way that is constructive, that doesn't come off sounding accusatory, that comes from a place of wanting to understand, not because he deserves more understanding than me, but because the only way I can get him to listen to my plea for integrity here is first by listening. Hmm. So I say all of this because what I teach is still something I need to learn. And that's okay. It's again, it's part of growing, but I don't want anyone to think I've got it all figured out. I'm only human. And for those who sometimes feel alone with their questions, just know, my friends, you have me as your company. That's all. I'd like to loop back to something that you said earlier in our conversation in which you've talked about how you know the groups we belong to, whether they're immutable groups or groups that we can go in and out of like religious groups or other cultural affinity groups, right? Mm-hmm. When you are outside of a group, right? And in this case, Jim is outside of what it means to be Muslim, what it means to follow Islam. You see more easily, right? You can see all the places where you feel it needs to be improved, right? Because yeah. that group is not part of you. Because the groups that we are a part of are a part of our own identity. They are a part of what make us who we are. And even when you are part of that group, whatever it might be, especially one that you could even potentially leave, like a political party or a religion, mm-hmm. there is, and I think this speaks to, And again, (laughs) you'll have to allow me to give you another compliment here. I do think it speaks to, and this is instructive, the bravery inherent in critiquing not just the problems that might exist within a religious structure, right? Or things that need reform, but what is so deeply involved in that action, and which is why I think you're frustrated with Jim, is that people like Jim, not just Republicans, Anyone who exists on earth struggles with critiquing a group that even if they are not partaking in the worst aspects of that group, right? You know, I don't think Jim was at the Capitol on January 6th. I don't think Jim, like you said, was supporting the worst excesses of Donald Trump's presidency and they were numerous. You can continue to tell yourself over and over again, well, that part of the group isn't me. And in one respect, you are right. That's not you. You're not physically doing those things or supporting those things. but. There is a part of us, all of us, that do understand that for us to be a part of that group and to not want to reform it or to not want to speak up about it, we are in some ways not doing that because we recognize, even on a subconscious level, that there are parts of that, the parts of the group that are in need of reform, let's say, the reason we don't challenge them as often as we do is because we do recognize that our group allegiance is inherently intertwined with the aspects of the group that need reform. And to challenge the group is to challenge a portion of our own identity. And to challenge your own identity is intensely difficult because it means that there might be something that you need to reform within yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I'm not telling you any, any stories you don't already know, but I think that it is for people who are hearing you talk about your relationship with Jim, I think that people really underestimate that critiquing a group that you're a part of is much, 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 much more difficult 
because of your emotional and identity-based investment in it is much more difficult than critiquing a group that is distant from you because there is no identity-based investment inherent in that. Absolutely. And it all really does then, you know, return to the ego, right? Again, as social creatures, and you've talked a lot about this over your many brilliant podcast episodes, you know, we crave belonging. And so our survival instincts tell us, don't become an outcast of your group. Stick with them. That's where the safety is. And at one level, there is psychological safety indeed. At another level, though, there is sort of a suffocation of fully coming into your own. When your conscience is telling you one thing and your ego is telling that conscience to shut the fuck up, that dissonance within can be very dangerous to our mental and emotional and spiritual health. And so it does take a modicum of moral courage to even begin to admit those questions to yourself, let alone to actually address them. And I think that's why I, I won't absolutely will not speak for you, but one of the projects that I see coming out of the podcast is that, you know, you've created and are still creating, if you will, a haven for us misfits, right? It's an anti-tribe of people who have these really gut-wrenching, but at the same time, mind-blowing questions about what it means to live the good life, the examined life. How can it be an over-examined life? You know, do you stop having a good life if you step too far into examination? And these are the sorts of questions that give a lot of us a feeling of transcending the prosaic, mundane aspects of our day-to-day existence. If ever there was a liberalism that is less procedural, less mechanistic, and more transcendent, it's the kind of liberalism that you represent. So thank you for allowing me to feel a place of belonging. Well, you're welcome. And I'm glad that you <laughs> spoke for a, a bit there so I could compose myself because that means a great deal coming from you, Yashad. And that is the kind of space that I'm looking to create. I think the most important thing, and I don't want to talk about myself or the podcast at too much length here, but I think the reason that I so connect with the work that you're doing, it's related, is these factions that we're divided into, you know, liberal, conservative, white, black, Muslim, Christian, atheist, et cetera, et cetera, the topics that you so clearly and deeply write about. They're just in so many ways a mirage. I just got so burnt out, whether it was from, I mean, a lot of it was just from my last relationship, which more than happy to go into detail at some other point, because again, I want to be respectful of your time. But that experience was transformational at first in a terrible way. As I mentioned in that tweet thread, which you reached out to me about, sent me into a terrible state of depression and eventually therapy and medication. And, you know, before I got on Lexapro, the medication I was on was, let's say, available at the corner store. <laughs> mm. And it was a dark place. And in many ways, I started this humble show just as a therapeutic act, just because I not only wanted to disprove to myself, really, that's it, selfishly to myself, the kinds of things I had heard in those circles I'd been in. With, by the way, I should note, genuinely, I would say good people. And I think that that gets lost. And 
in that tweet thread I wrote and in the things that I sometimes talk about here, because I'll, I'll just refer to them as activists and et cetera, et cetera. Like, I don't believe there are that many truly evil people, and I don't think they were even bad. It's just a misguided application of diversity and inclusion, which ends up turning people into widgets. And what happens in that process when you whittle someone down to an essence of a label and then apply a good, bad moral framework to a part of a person that is immutable? You are, on one hand, welcoming them in based on an immutable characteristic as you are punching them for all the things, all the boxes they aren't checking. So when you tell someone that they are included in your diversity project because of one thing, but they will allow the other thing that they could do without, what are you calling a person? What are you saying to that person? When someone says that you're not radical enough, let's say, or that if you just embrace the negativity from that ignorant place of your ex-partner, right? I'm sure that at the end of the day, if you looked at the ledger, she is a good person. I don't want to speak for you. But all I can say about my own life and my own relationships is that I've never been with a person who is bad. Every person that I've been with, including my last relationship, was with someone who I consider a deeply good and moral person. My critique of that relationship and the thing that caused me to start this show is, like I said, a misguided and ultimately harmful application of what is ultimately a net good project, which is the idea of being diverse and inclusive and allowing people in to our society and to, into our hearts for all of who they truly are. But when you whittle people down to labels, Muslim, gay, queer, black, white, Armenian, Irish, whatever it is, straight, cis, white, male, whatever. When that's what you make them, and then you tell them that there is certain parts of their identity that is better or worse than others, it all goes back to your project, your shed. You can't do that to people and then also expect for them to truly feel included. So <laughs> a bit of a rant there, but I felt it was relevant because that's why I wanted to create this space anyway. And that's why I am so blessed to have you on to talk to you about this, not just so that I can get a chance to speak with someone who I greatly admire and in many ways look up to, but because I think that the work that you're doing um, in the educational space and beyond is so incredibly important because I will say this, I created the show because I wanted to create a podcast that I wish I had had back then um, because it would have it helped me. And so I am grateful for your project because I know that there are kids out there and adults who in the same way I wish that I had had my show, I know that there are kids and adults out there who you will help and who you will save because of the existence of your work. And so I say from the past into the future, thank you for what you do, Rashad. <laughs> well, let's thank our dogs first, okay? Yeah, I'm definitely going to give him a, a hug after this, but thank you. This has been brilliant. I really appreciate you um, opening up the way you have, and I can't wait to meet you in person one of these days. I'd love that. But to wrap us up and turn it back, because... I know you've listened to episodes of the show. You have said as much. So it would not be fair if I didn't ask you the question that I ask every guest. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what's funny? Even people, when they say they, they know the question is coming, it can catch them off guard. But here it is, Irshad. As individuals, and I know you understand this on a deep level, we are limited in our time, in our energy, and often in our capacity for empathy. Even the most well-intentioned, 
caring person can't be thinking of every other person, every group of people all the time. It's just impossible. So is there someone or a group of people in your life or in the world at large right now that you would like to take a moment and offer empathy to? I can't believe I'm saying this, but I will. Oh, my dad. My dad with whom I haven't had a relationship for a very, very long time. And he's getting on in his years. And, you know, I'm going to be flying back to Canada shortly to see my family. My dad is not part of that household. And I was thinking to myself the other day, if I saw him at a family barbecue, for example, would I approach him? And I think for the first time in my life, I'm resolved to make contact with him before too long. And I've already got, intellectually speaking, the empathy to understand that his violence towards his daughters and his wife is the language that he knew how to speak, the only language he knew how to speak. But it's intellectual empathy. I can rationalize it, but I have to go a step further and actually accept, emotionally accept it, accept his reality without excusing his behavior, but accept the culture, the generation, the language that he knew to the exclusion of a more compassionate and reasonable language. So, yeah, I'm surprising myself when I say I want to and need to develop authentic empathy for my father. Thank you for sharing that. And having read and understood in my own small way what your father put you and your family through and the life that could have been for your mother had she gotten together with the man she was exchanging letters with. I so deeply appreciate you sharing that. And I would recommend to anyone, if they haven't already been encouraged to, to read Irshad's book, Don't Label Me, because it is not only a story about expressing moral courage in a framework for doing so, but a deeply personal excavation of a life. And so thank you for sharing that with us. And and thank you for sharing your work with us, Irshad. It means the world to me, and I, I know it does to others as well. I hope this is the beginning of a lifelong friendship. Me too. Thank you. 